Welcome back to The Big Questions. As always, I'm your host, Dylan Riddle. Last week, the Institute of International Finance hosted our first ever central banking-focused event, Central Banking in the Era of COVID-19. Over the course of the event, we heard from seven central bankers on a range of issues. I wanted to go through some of the highlights. To start, we're going to turn it over to John Williams from the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. He provides a great overview of the current situation and what the Fed has done to date. When the United States entered the pandemic in March, uh, I never really expected that three and a half months later, I'd be sitting here making speeches from my apartment or to the day when gathering groups is safe and we can meet in person again. We're now 17 weeks into a catastrophic pandemic. It's cost over half of the worldwide, and it's had a devastating effect on the economy. Today, I'm going to talk about the current state of the U.S. economy, our goals for the recovery, and how the Federal Reserve is responding to the worst recession in memory. Now, before I continue, let me give the usual disclaimer. The views expressed are mine alone and do not necessarily reflect the Federal Open Market Committee or anyone else's Federal Reserve system. For the economic effects of the coronavirus have caused great hardship and created enormous uncertainty. At the root of this downturn, global pandemic, means it's completely different than recession compared to anything we've experienced in the past. So as a pandemic unfolds, many people are starting to ask questions about our economic future. What will the recovery look like? When will we begin? And how will it be affected by the virus? Well, it's easiest to start with the last of these questions first. The virus will continue to be a center stage throughout the economic recovery. We're traveling down a narrow path, balancing the return of economic activity with effective containment of COVID-19. The overall unemployment rate reached nearly 15% in April, and around 20 million Americans have lost their jobs, numbers I hoped I would never see in my lifetime. And these figures understate the full extent of the pandemic's toll on the economy. The pandemic and the ensuing economic downturn have done disproportionate harm to communities of color. Black and Hispanic families, as well as lower wage workers, have suffered the most. And those who least can afford it have been hardest hit, making a strong and full economic recovery of paramount importance. As the recent surge in cases in some states demonstrates, much is still unknown about how the pandemic will play out in the months ahead. That said, there have been signs that we may be past the worst of the extreme economic distress, and early indications of recovery have started to emerge. Now, as states began to open up and people returned to eating in restaurants and shopping in stores, we've seen sizable increases in consumer spending. We've also seen increases in building permits and other indicators of the housing market, signaling a turnaround in that sector. People have been getting back to work and the unemployment rate has started to edge down. Although this improvement is welcome, the economy is still far from healthy, and a full recovery will likely take years to achieve. Now, one of the things that's been really unique about this recession is the lightning speed of events. Traditional macroeconomic data sources, like the labor market report and GDP, are published with lags of weeks or months and don't typically allow one to see the changes within the month or quarter. So in response, economists of the Federal Reserve and elsewhere have increasingly turned to analyzing a wide variety of high-frequency data, which, as the name suggests, are published daily or weekly with only short reporting lags. High-frequency data give us more timely and granular information about what's going on in the economy in between the standard macro data releases. They also help us paint a more detailed picture of people's behavior and how it's changing 
in the midst of unprecedented circumstances. Now, these data tell us whether small businesses are hiring and whether people are eating in restaurants, staying in hotels, and boarding airplanes. Now, when states started to reopen, signs from both the standard macro data and the high-frequency granular data have been encouraging. Together, they indicate that likely seen the low point of the down, and that the overall economy has begun to recover. Even in New York, the hardest hit state, we have seen initial signs of a turnaround. Surveys of manufacturing and service, services firms rebounded significantly in June, following record lows in April and May. And revenues of small businesses in New York have gradually picked up as well. In contrast to these positive signs, we are seeing some indications of a slowing in the pace of recovery in those states that are currently experiencing large-scale outbreaks. Now, this is a valuable reminder that the economy's fate is inextricably linked to the path of the virus. A strong economic recovery depends on effective and sustained containment of COVID-19. Now, turning to the question of what the goals for the recovery are, well, one measure of success is a return to the sustained growth and historically low unemployment that we had attained before the pandemic. I know this seems a long way from where we are today and may seem unreachable during these darkest days of the recession. But he's, history teaches us that the economy can get back to full strength even after a deep downturn. Now, the unique nature of the recession and the uncertainty that comes with it means that the policy responses, public health, fiscal, and by the Fed, need to be designed to reflect the nature of the pandemic and the challenges it poses to the economy. Although I'll focus on events in the United States, it's important to stress that this is a global health and economic crisis. Most other countries are facing similar challenges and are likewise engaged in a range of policy actions. Our economic prospects are tied to our ability to contain the spread of the virus, care for those who fall ill, and develop effective treatments. In addition, fiscal policy has played a critically important role in providing financial support to families, small businesses, and those who are out of work during the crisis. This timely support contributed greatly to the rebound in consumer spending and jobs that we've seen over the past two months. The Federal Reserve has taken rapid and significant actions to stabilize critical parts of our financial system and to support the flow of credit, thereby helping position the economy for a strong and sustained return to maximum employment and price stability. In March, the Federal Open Market Committee, or FOMC, brought the target range for the federal funds rate to near zero. And the FOMC has indicated that it expects to keep interest rates at this level until it is confident that the, the economy has weathered recent events and is on track to achieve its maximum employment and price stability goals. Bringing interest rates down to near zero makes it easier for households and businesses and others to meet their borrowing needs and fosters favorable financial conditions that will help promote a rebound in spending and investment. In addition, the Fed's been conducting large-scale repo operations and purchasing sizable quantities of U.S. Treasury securities and agency mortgage-backed securities to support market functioning at a time of extraordinary volatility in markets. These actions averted a potential shutdown in the availability of credit, which would have made the current economic crisis far more severe. Although functioning in financial markets has improved since March, the Federal Reserve has indicated that it will continue to increase asset, increase asset holdings to sustain smooth market functioning, thereby fostering effective transmission of monetary policy to broader financial conditions. In addition to stabilizing financial markets, the Federal Reserve has instituted a number of programs to support the flow of credit to households, businesses, and state and local governments. 
These actions will enable them to continue to, continue to do their work both now and when normal life resumes. Now taken together, these programs have helped restore the functioning of financial markets, they've fostered favorable financial conditions and support the continued flow of credit to businesses and households. So I'll conclude with this. This pandemic and this recession form a pivotal moment for the Federal Reserve. We're seeing signs that the economy has started to recover. Still, the economic outlook remains highly uncertain and it's going to take considerable time to restore the economy to its full potential. But rest assured, we're committed to using our full range of tools to support the economy and, to, and bring about a full and robust recovery. For a broader look, let's see how different central banks reacted to the COVID-19 shock. Here's Deputy Governor Eduardo Guzman from Mexico. In terms of the outlook for rates, I would say uh, my impression, and that is my personal point of view, is that uh, we still have some margin to reduce interest rates. But of course, we have to do this in a very careful way, because I think that at the same time, for the reasons I already mentioned, the risks that we face in each additional movement with, with interest rates is increasing. So even though I think that we, we may still have some room, uh, I think we have to be very careful. Of course, this all depends, this will need to depend on the, specific, on the specific information that we have available at the time of the decision. So uh, uh, that is the way I would, I would put that. Now, you were asking about uh, out-of-calendar decisions and so on. Of course, we, uh, we in principle, what we plan to do is to adhere to the calendar that, uh, that we have. But I think that uh, you have to take into consideration that we are facing a situation which is extremely complex. We are facing a situation in which perhaps this is the worst shock to the economy that we have seen since the Great Depression. Uh, as you know, as I said before, the size of, uh, you know, the GDP contraction that is expected for this year is, uh, is uh, huge. And uh, on the other hand, uh, you know, we, uh, we have a lot of uncertainties about how strong the process of recovery is going to be and so on, and to what extent the situation is going to change. So under circumstances like this, not only the Bank of Mexico, but any central bank has to be flexible and has to be ready to act whenever this is needed. This does not mean that we are considering at this, at this stage, you know, to change the calendar. It simply means that you have to be, be ready to act if circumstances compel you to do that. I also heard from Mario Marcel of the Chilean Central Bank. He told us about the country's robust and oftentimes unconventional response. Let's have a listen. At the very early stages of, uh, of this uh, shock, uh, we cut the, the policy rate by 125 basis points in two subsequent uh, meetings in March. Um, and we brought the, the policy rate to what we estimate uh, to be the effective uh, zero lower uh, bound in Chile uh, that uh, we estimate at 0.5%. In addition to that, we have adopted a number of measures. Actually, we started doing that uh, back in November in response to this uh, social crisis. So at that time, we uh, provided uh, some liquidity to facilitate adjustment of markets uh, to a changing uh, perception of uh, of uh, of uh, risk 
that uh, worked relatively well. Uh, even the FX intervention that we adopted in uh, November, uh, we needed to keep it uh, only until January, and then we uh, then we uh, interrupted it because um, volatility was uh, back to normal uh, at that time. Uh, and uh, more recently, we, uh, with the COVID-19 uh, crisis, uh, we have um, concentrated on two dimensions. Uh, first of all, uh, we created this uh, uh, FSIC uh, facility that uh, provides uh, loans, uh, provides four-year loans uh, to banks at the, at the policy rate of 0.5% nominal. Uh, uh, conditional on uh, their own uh, lending uh, behavior. So uh, uh, banks have uh, more access uh, to this uh, facility uh, to the extent that uh, they uh, lend, especially to the corporate sector. Mm -hmm. uh, so the first uh, uh, of, the, of those uh, facilities was uh, adopted in March and, uh, and, uh, and already uh, disbursed some uh, uh, more than $20 billion, uh, that is about 95% of, uh, of the potential that we set at that time. You have to escalate that to the size of the Chilean economy so that uh, makes uh, a little less than 10% of GDP. Uh, and once uh, banks uh, began to use up uh, all these uh, resources and considering the, uh, the worsening uh, prospects for economic activity, then we open the second phase of, uh, of this uh, facility that is uh, starting uh, these days, actually tomorrow, uh, channeling uh, $16 billion more. Uh, so that's uh, about uh, another 7% of the GDP or so. Mm -hmm. uh, and the link uh, or the connection with uh, lending uh, to the corporate sector is, uh, we're now making it even stronger than before. Mm -hmm. Now, um, it, so that's one line uh, for the central bank. The other line of activity has been on, on providing uh, liquidity and, uh, and uh, starting a, a, an asset purchase program that I will refer more in detail later. But, uh, on, uh, but let me elaborate a little more on the effects of this uh, um, uh, on lending facility. Uh, this has uh, provided not just the liquidity to the uh, banking sector, but also incentives and has combined with uh, guarantees uh, from the government. So in parallel to our uh, liquidity facility, the government uh, created a guarantee scheme that covers uh, between 60 to 85% of uh, loans uh, to um, uh, small and medium uh, companies. Uh, to fund uh, um, a working capital under pretty favorable financial conditions. Uh, and uh, that has uh, provided the risk management side to the liquidity side that uh, we are uh, doing. And finally, the uh, banking regulator has built a little more flexibility in applying some, uh, some uh, standards to the banking industry. So the effect of that is that uh, uh, banks have uh, uh, um, have uh, uh, lent uh, uh, have increased their lending 
to the corporate sector uh, and the, during the last three months it has been growing at uh, more than 10% in real terms year and year. Mm -hmm. Uh, that uh, compares to some uh, five to six percent in the in the previous months. Um, so rather than uh, rather than shrinking, as I said earlier, actually bank uh, uh, corporate lending is uh, growing. Uh, part of that is uh, going to new uh, working capital loans, uh, and uh, part part of that is also going to the rollover of uh, debts that are coming uh, due. Uh, during these uh, months, uh, and the banks have applied that not uh, just to corporate loans, but also to consumer loans and mortgages. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, we expect this uh, to uh, continue on the grounds of uh, enhanced uh, incentives from our side, and also some enhancement of the guarantees from uh, the government side. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, I believe that uh, this is uh, very central to strategy in dealing with this uh, crisis, uh, given that, uh, that uh, essentially uh, uh, companies are facing a, a, a huge uh, major increases in their, uh, in their um, liquidity gaps uh, that cannot be closed easily, so credit is essential to cover part of, uh, part of that, and to prevent uh, companies uh, to move from a liquidity constraint to a solvency problem that could make the economy make much more difficult for the economy to recover once the health measures are rolled back, which we expect that to happen sometime in the second half of the year. Howard Lee of the Hong Kong Monetary Authority also had an interesting perspective, touching on the resilience of the financial system during this hyper and real-time stress test. Take a listen to what he had to say. Now, if we talk about stress test, I think uh, in the financial system in Hong Kong went through really hyper stress test uh, in the last uh, uh, 12 months uh, for the events that I mentioned earlier. But... Uh, Luckily, we managed to uh, survive and also uh, is still kicking. Um, now, I think what you asked me, what, what, what are the surprises and what are the lessons learned? Uh, for this COVID-19 thing, to me personally, my surprise is the speed and extent of the spread of the virus and the kind of uh, impact on the economy around the world. I think this is really unseen in a generation, this kind of a widespread impact impact on so many countries around the world, virtually all countries, all jurisdictions around the world. And um, also the response from central banks, the government, and also the financial industries uh, have been unprecedented um, in terms of the extent, in terms of the depth and breadth of the response. Um, these are really something amazing. Now, um, one lesson that I, uh, I learned, uh, perhaps more than one lesson, is uh, a few lessons that I perhaps would like to share is, uh, first is uh, when we deal with this situation where we need to make judgment call as to what action we, we are going to take. But in this crisis situation, uh, we need to be quick. Uh, and sometimes we need to lean on the safe side in deciding uh, whether we take, something, take some action or we wait a little bit more 
for the full event to unfold uh, because sometimes waiting uh, can lead to rapid deterioration of the situation, especially if we are seeing industry facing very rapid decline in revenue and facing very severe uh, liquidity squeeze. Uh, another point is we really need to build up the buffer, the capacity in sunny days. Now, um, like um, in Hong Kong, we are lucky to have a pretty uh, robust uh, banking system. Our uh, capital adequacy ratio it, on average is 20%. Um, liquidity coverage ratio is 160%. Now, we had to build up these uh, when the situation was um, was was favorable, uh, because if we come in a crisis and then start to think about what 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 sort of a defense we can build up, it's usually too late. Um, so we have to sort of save for the rainy days. This is um, another point that we um, we we believe uh, is very important. In the Asia Pacific region, I see that um, after the finan Asian financial crisis. Uh, we see that a lot of economies, a lot of jurisdictions are actually practicing a lot of these. That's why uh, during this crisis, we see a, a lot of uh, Asian Pacific economies coming into it uh, in uh, a, a quite a bit of better position in terms of uh, like a fiscal position, ex external position, balance of payment, and sort of uh, exchange rate, um, uh, 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 sort of a mis uh, for FX mismatch kind of situation. So this is uh, another uh, important lesson that I myself uh, believe um, that I, I would have to remember. And um, uh, so, um, so uh, let's see, uh, going forward, uh, there are more work to do and uh, we hope that we uh, would be able to continue to keep the economy going and then seeing the uh, recovery uh, pretty soon. Moving to Europe, John Cunliffe of the Bank of England had another interesting perspective, noting that COVID-19 has accelerated digital trends. And here he touches on the development of central bank digital currencies. Have a listen. We published uh, just on, as the crisis just started at the end of February, we published a uh, discussion paper um, on CBDC, central bank digital currency. Um, we decided not to um, publish an open-ended set of questions or uh, yet another analysis of central bank digital currency. There's plenty of that out there. So we published a straw man, as you would say, uh, description of um, how some of the key design choices might be resolved and uh, a particular form of central bank digital currency um, in order to stimulate people to say, well, no, we uh, that's not what we want, or, or actually uh, there are dangers in that, or to say, um, uh, uh, this will be useful, but you need to do the following. So it was quite a, um, uh, it wasn't a blueprint for CBDC and there's no decision, but it was more than just an open-ended set of questions. It was, well, here's what, what one could look like if you made the following design choices. What's the reaction to that? Uh, we're getting reactions in and the, uh, the discussion period is not yet closed. Uh, and then we'll evaluate that and see what that tells us about uh, the purpose, the motivation for doing the CBDC, uh, what that also tells us about the critical design choices. I'll make a, a number of points though about this. Um, one is that this is not exclusively a central bank issue. I think that the nature of money, the way money is used in, in society, 
um, has large political uh, ramifications. Um, there are issues of privacy. Uh, there are issues of uh, anti-crime measures. There's issues of inclusiveness. So in all the great debates in our history about money, and we tend to have a great debate about money every 100, 150 years, it's, it's a difficult concept, money. It's a very useful one because we'll use it, but the forms it takes in, in our society and economies change over time. Every time we have a, a big discussion about money, be it uh, gold uh, or metallic currencies or fiat currencies uh, and the like, it's always a political debate as well, because money is actually kind of a, 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 um, a huge importance to the way society functions. So um, though central banks are in charge of the money in their, in their jurisdictions, those debates will go wider than central banks. Um, and yeah, we'll have to see how, uh, how others engage with it. The second point I'd make is um, uh, we will carry on producing physical cash as long as people want physical cash. So this is not a question of, you asked whether the crisis has accelerated the change in, in cash usage. Our job is to provide the money that people, in the form that people want and are able to use. And as the way we, as I say, the way we live and the way we transact changes, that form may change. And we've seen a huge change in my life to, to electronic payments uh, away from cash, um, which has just followed the way people want to, uh, to, to, um, to transact uh, and to operate. You couldn't have imagined using a credit card to pay for a coffee or a debit card to pay for a coffee 30 years ago um, uh, in the way that people do now uh, without thinking. And the last point I want to make is, um, uh, as far as the bank is concerned, and I think this is pretty much true for all central banks, it's our job to ensure that the money that people use in their everyday lives is safe and they can rely on it. And they know what happens uh, under stress and they don't have concerns about the money they're using under stress. So no matter how it's provided, whether it's electronic, whether it's digital, whether it's blockchain, or whether it's paper, I think it's the responsibility of central banks to ensure that people can have trust um, and confidence in the money they use for everyday transactions. And that will cover not just how we think about central bank digital currencies, it'll cover how we think about sort of private versions of money. And, and I should say on private money, 95% of the, of, the, of the actual money we're exchanging in society in the UK is claims on commercial banks. It's not, it's not state money uh, in, the sense of, uh, uh, in the sense of cash. Um, but you have to ensure that however the money is provided, it's safe and people can trust it and rely on it. Continuing with the European perspective, my colleague and last episode's guest, Robin Brooks, asked the ECB's Isabel Schnabel about the German view of the ECB during this crisis. Here's Robin and Isabel. Can you explain Germany and the view of the ECB? My view is that it's quite differentiated and generational. Perhaps older people are more opposed to these policies. When I talk to friends my age or younger, I don't think they necessarily even have a big problem with Eurobonds. I'm curious what your view is. I mean, in, in general, I, I should stress that the, uh, the attitude in Germany towards the euro is very positive, right? So the, the, the euro enjoys uh, a very large uh, support 
Um, the support uh, uh, towards the ECB is a, is a bit uh, smaller, but it's still, uh, I think, above average, if I remember correctly, in the in the surveys. Um, uh, but uh, of course, it's quite obvious if you just look at the daily press. Uh, I mean, it's a bit scary. And uh, I also, I think there is so much, um, I mean, misunderstanding of monetary policy. And uh, actually, that is uh, something that uh, I already told in my hearing at the European Parliament, that this is something I want to do, not just in Germany, everywhere where it's needed, right? To explain what we are actually doing, because there is there is so little understanding of how monetary policy uh, works. Uh, and there are all these uh, simplistic narratives which yeah. are mostly um, uh, wrong or incomplete. And um, I really think it's extremely uh, important um, to communicate uh, much better. I mean, we, uh, I think it's it's not just the people who don't understand us, but it's also maybe that we haven't sent the, the message uh, right. clearly enough. Uh, I mean, actually, uh, I mean, even if you think about the, the German constitutional court, I mean, the, the fact that there was this claim that we, uh, that we have not done uh, this analysis of proportionality is right. uh, mostly telling me that we have not communicated that enough. Because, I mean, uh, I mean, there are thousands of people here who are doing nothing else than thinking about uh, the proportionality of our measures, the effectiveness, the suitability, the necessity, and so on. But obviously, we have not communicated that well enough. And so I mm. think uh, this is also what uh, President Lagarde uh, um, stresses a lot, that we have to go uh, beyond the professional audience and we have to learn to also uh, uh, talk to uh, the, the regular people uh, who have uh, fears um, about inflation, let's say. I mean, in, in Germany, there's always been a lot of fear about inflation, but also who may be worried about low rates and who don't see the connection uh, between, um, I mean, uh, like, uh, so that monetary policy also has an effect on having a job or not, but they see very clearly that interest rates are low. And these things have to be uh, explained in, uh, like, in, in plain language. And mm -hmm. uh, this is something that uh, I try to do. I mean, I'm still learning how to do that, but I think it's incredibly uh, important. And uh, I mean, in, in some countries, it's more important than in others. And in Germany, certainly it is very important because there is so much uh, criticism, which I think would disappear if uh, people understood uh, monetary policy better. Finally, I want to close with the Bank for International Settlements, Augustine Carstens, and his fairly straightforward evaluation of central bank response to this COVID-19 crisis. I think that the response has been outstanding. I mean, uh, you might anticipate this for me, uh, uh, working for central banks and having been a central banker myself. But to be very honest with you, I have been honestly very positively surprised by the, by the very quick response of many central banks. I mean, the, uh, you can, you can think that the, just the, in, in February, mid-February of this year, we were not anticipating this. Uh, as a matter of fact, we were writing this report that you're commenting today with a completely different script. And just in a matter of uh, weeks, uh, basically, the, the script need, needed to be changed. I think that uh, the main advanced economy central banks had a very quick diagnostics. I think they put together uh, the nature of the crisis, the nature that, as I explained, is completely different from others and what the implications, at least uh, in the first stage, would be more, more than anything, trying to manage 
liquidity issues, uh, trying to manage uh, the, the, the performance of markets. I think to, to uh, assure the tradability of markets has been of, have been of the essence. And uh, they had the, the frame of mind to provide a very quick, bold response. And I think it was spot on. I think that the, the, the very immediate objective, which was to stabilize markets, was uh, achieved. Uh, and in the absence of this, the crisis would have been augmented uh, dramatically. Now, of course, we might be entering into a, a more difficult stage, a stage where uh, some of the heavy lifting will have to come more from fiscal policy. If uh, basically what happens is we, uh, in terms of the progression of the crisis, we move from a liquidity issue to a solvency issue among mostly, mostly among firms. Uh, there are central banks other than, than providing uh, some great backstops for, for banks, uh, keeping interest rates relatively low. Uh, 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 basically, the results of uh, problem, payment problems of some firms would have to be absorbed through the fiscal authorities. As uh, Chairman Powell said, said, central banks are there for lending, not for spending. And uh, therefore, I think guarantees and indemnities have been of the essence. Uh, emerging markets also have been able to react very quickly. Many of them have gone uh, beyond their traditional policy response, uh, acting as market makers of that resort, in some cases intervening very actively in their uh, local sovereign debt markets, uh, and, uh, and uh, considering their limiting, limited fiscal and monetary policy space, they have done well. So, I mean, it's not only that the central banks have responded very boldly, adequately, but also, I, I, I think we have to give credit to fiscal policy, to the fiscal authorities. I mean, usually we tend to complain about the fiscal authorities. Uh, in the EFC, I think that uh, probably uh, some uh, some reluctance of the fiscal response was there, but we haven't seen that in this case. So it's a very, very fortunate uh, combination of fiscal and monetary policies, having them working together. That's all we have for this episode. For more on the event, you can check out the full videos on our website, iif.com. Thank you once again for listening, and don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Dylan Riddle. We'll talk to you soon.